want you to pray with me. Jesus, um, the riches that are contained in you exceed our imaginations. The wildest we could ever imagine doesn't even get close to what it's like. And God, it's probably true that lots of us have had moments of uh, almost ecstasy in your presence and in intimacy with you. But that's still short of what's possible. That's still short of what it's going to be like in heaven with the full revelation of uh, who you are. But today, Lord, I pray that you'd inspire us to follow hard after you, that our hearts would follow hard after you, that we would seek the reward of uh, knowing you. Amen. There's two very famous Americans. Uh, one of them is called Prince. Everyone know Prince? Or the artist formerly known as Prince? Or Symbol? I don't know. Is he still Symbol? Does anyone even know? He decided he wouldn't have a name anymore. He'd just be called the Symbol, but there's no pronunciation for the Symbol, so he gets called Symbol, I guess. I don't know. What is it? Oh, what is it now? He's back to Prince. Excellent. Another really famous American, although in a totally different way, is actually Jonathan Edwards. And this is not the guy that tells you where your cat is or your dog is now, the kind of the medium channel I kind of do. This is the uh, theologian. He was around in about the 1700s. He's probably the most famous American theologian to the uh, Native American Indians. Anyway, let's see what these two guys have got to say about seeking God. Prince obviously has a little bit to say about seeking God. Uh, What does he say? Well, he says uh, God's a funky little dude because everyone's looking for him and no one can find him. Interesting. Jonathan Edwards, on the other hand, says this. He says, uh, The kind of religion that God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull and lifeless woodings. Those weak inclinations that lack convictions that raise us a little above indifference. God in his word greatly insists that we be in good earnest, fervent in spirit and that our hearts be engaged vigorously in our religion. Be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Romans 12.11 says, probably the curse of our day is apathy. The uh, dictionary uh, definition of apathy, uh, it actually comes from uh, a Greek word, apatheia, and that root word there actually means without feeling. And you'd probably have to admit, uh, and I certainly would have to admit, that that by and large is... uh, what you can find a lot of the time in churches is you can find people going to church, you can find them listening to stuff about God, but when it all comes down to it, they actually don't have a whole lot of feelings toward God. They don't have a whole lot of passion toward God. And I think uh, for us, I think this is, I really feel like the project's at a bit of a stage where we kind of need to uh, light the fuse. You know, we've had six, six months, those of, uh, those of us who've been coming, we've been here for six months and it's really time to light the fuse and see this dynamite go off. The word fervour, on the other hand, as uh, Romans 12 verse 11 says, the word fervour actually means to have intense and passionate feelings. And this is what God wants all of us to do. He actually wants you to go from being feeling less, which we all can be at some point in time, to being intensely passionate and following him. And to do that, we're actually going to, uh, or part of, following, uh, part of our journey today is actually to follow King Asa, all right, which is not a swear word, all right? I'm not sure how many of you have read Second Chronicles, but I uh, read this story about King Asa a while ago, and it, it's an inspiring story. And so today is not actually meant to be uh, kind of a baseball bat to the back of the head, kind of a head kick kind of a thing. Today's meant to be, you've probably got a little bit from God, and you've just got no idea how much more you could get. And this is the story of this guy called King Asa. So we're just going to truck through 
uh, King Asa's story. Pretty much his life to his death happens between uh, 2 Chronicles 14 and 15. The two chapters are all about him, and we'll truck through it. Kings in the Old Testament uh, mostly were bad. Uh, the first one that you had was Saul, and then you had David, who was a man after God's heart, own heart, who committed adultery and then killed a husband, uh, and then the child died. But he was a guy after God's own heart. And then after that, probably about 80 to 85% of your kings are dodgy. All right? They're just bad. They're just bad dudes. This is a rough timeline uh, leading up to Asa. All right? So you've got Saul first. He kind of starts okay, and then he goes bad. Uh, David came after him, and then David has Solomon. Right? Now, Solomon actually starts really, really well. He starts off and uh, he has the opportunity to get riches from God and he says, no, I just want to get wisdom so I can help rule your people really well. And then, I don't know how this works, but generally speaking, having 700 wives and 300 concubines is probably not wise. Yeah? I mean, seriously. I probably shouldn't even say this, but how many mother-in-laws is that? That's, no, I shouldn't say it, should I? So Solomon, he's good for a bit and then he gets bad. And then he gets good at the end, all right? But obviously, if he's got a 1,000 women, at that point in time, women are good, but it's just good to have one, all right? One's plenty. Don't infer anything I'm saying uh, to my wife there, all right? But God says, have one. Have one wife, not 700 and then 300 concubines. Generally, I mean, just imagine how many kids there would have been from that. Man, that would have been huge. Be a good dad to... You probably might have had 4,000 kids. It's possible, isn't it? I mean, anyway, some of you are going, oh, jeez, never going to get any sleep. One of his kids is uh, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the heir to the throne of, over Israel. And uh, basically, all you need to know about Rehoboam is he's an idiot, all right? Because what happens is he's in charge and some people come to him and they say, look, the people are getting really weary from the taxes and the load and everything that you're putting on top of the people. And uh, they said, look, you should just ease up, all right? And uh, he gets uh, the old guys in, and, and that's what they're saying to him. They're saying, just ease up on the people, and they'll be ro- really loyal to you. And then he gets the young guys, all right? He's gone and found a whole bunch of 18-year-olds. doesn't really say, but a whole bunch of 18-year-olds brought them in and thought, let's get the wisdom from the 18-year-olds, right, instead of listening to the old guys. 18-year-old guys come in and just say, give it to them. It's really wise advice. So he says, my, something like this, he says, my finger is thicker than my dad's thigh. All right? And what he's really saying is, you think my dad was tough? I'm way tougher than him, and I'm just going to put it all over you. And the people rebel. All right? And they, he didn't listen to the old guys, which he should have done, which is a lesson to all the young guys here. Listen to the old guys. All right? They're not always right, but often they actually know more than you know. One of my boys, actually, yesterday, this is classic, he goes, uh, Mummy and Daddy, he goes, why is it that teenagers, people find teenagers so hard sometimes? He said, why do people say they really struggle with them? This is like my seven-year-old saying this. I'm just going weird. And he's picked that up from somewhere, that people struggle with teenagers. And we try to help and understand it without trashing teenagers. But at the end of the day, one of the things I said is, teenagers kind of think they know everything. And older people, I said, do you think teenagers know more than people who have lived for like 45 years? And they're going, no, I don't think so. But that's one of the struggles, right? So Rehoboam listens to them, gets himself in all sorts of trouble. He ends up only having two of the 12 tribes of Israel. He has uh, Judah and he has uh, Benjamin. And his brother Jeroboam, who is a good guy, takes the others, all right? And he goes and forms Israel and Rehoboam stays king of Judah, all right? So just purely a numbers game, Rehoboam loses, Jeroboam wins, 
Okay, should have done what the old guy said. The next guy uh, who's king over Judah is uh, Abijah. And you just need to know Abijah is a bad dude. Let me uh, read you 1 Kings 15.3. Abijah walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. And then on the scene comes our friend Asa. Very interesting guy. All right, you've got to be careful how you say that name. All right, so let's have a bit of a look at what Asa does. We're just going to truck through some of the scriptures out of uh, Second Chronicles here. In verse 2, it says, And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherim and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law of the commandment. Isn't this interesting? He actually gets in and there's all this idolatry stuff going on and he's going, I'm going to bust it all. And then, and this, I don't know how this sits with you, and then he says, I'm going to command everyone in my country to seek after God. That's a command. And that would be an interesting thing. I'm not going to do it today, but it would be interesting if I said, I'm commanding all of you, I'm compelling all of you to seek after God this week. See, we, we actually have in our psyche this... Uh, democracy is, is really big time in our psyche. We just think it should be free choice. It always should be free choice. The weird thing about it is democracy really is a blip on the radar screen of history. There actually haven't been that many democracies over the whole of history. And what you've got here, you don't actually have a democracy here. You've got a king who loves God and he's commanding his people, we are going to follow. And this has some relevance, I think, uh, not so much the command side of it, but I think this has some relevance if you're a father here. At some level, your family and your house is your kingdom, all right? And someone in that kingdom needs to stand up and say, we are going to follow after God. And this is what we're going to do in this house. Not in a domineering, controlling way, but in a leadership way, they're going to lead forward. And this is what Asa does. He says, I'm commanding you all to follow God. Now, what is he doing? Is he commanding them to go and cut each other's fingers off? Something painful that would be really unhelpful. Is he doing that? He's actually commanding something that is for their good. This is the best thing for them. And in a sense, if I was to do it today, which I don't think I have the authority to do, but if I was to do it today, I would say to you, follow after God. I command you to follow after God for your own good. And it would be for your own good if you did it. We, uh, I'll probably talk about this a little bit later on, but we live uh, in a bit of a cultural milieu that doesn't really like commitment that much. Or at least we don't like long-term commitment. We like to have a shot at something for a, a week or a couple of weeks or maybe a month. When it freaked me out when I signed up on a 25-year mortgage. It's going, whoa, man, I've got to commit to something for 25 years. I've got to commit to paying for that. It's, and it's a heavy thing to get married for the same reason. Getting married is not this light, little, fluffy thing that we can just kind of get out of, although people seem to think that they can now. In God's eyes, you get joined together with someone else and you're joined with them and you've become one and that's the truth and that's where it's at and you don't split. The only thing that splits you is death. But it's freaky stuff because it's serious stuff. And look at this. This is verse 5, 6 and 7. The kingdom had rest under Asa. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And this is, uh, this is what Asa says, We have sought him, and he has given us peace on every side. There is dead set a blessing to seeking after God. With all of your heart, there is a big blessing. 
It's one thing that comes up at the school here quite often. Uh, well, it's not so much anymore because I'm not in the discipline system, but when I used to be in the discipline system at the school here, it used to come up all the time. People would go, yeah, discipline systems don't work. Well, most of the time it's actually that people's hearts don't work and they break the system. It's not that the uh, systems that we put in place don't work, it's that our hearts are, are broken and they actually foil most systems that we come up with. And this is really what As is saying, get back to, com- to following God. Follow him with all of your heart and he will bring peace to you. Here's a couple of pictures for you of some high places. The, um, the one on the right, uh, they think, is uh, probably an Israelite high place uh, at Lashish and the one on the left is a high place at Petra. Let me tell you what they used to do at these high places. The high place uh, would, the average high place would have an altar. It'd have a carved wooden pole that t- d- depicted the female goddess of fertility, Asherah. So you can imagine if it's got a fertility, the other things that they're doing there. Uh, a stone pillar symbolising the male deity, other idols, and some type of building. People would worship other gods. They'd sacrifice animals. They'd uh, pray to them. They'd burn incense to them. They'd, they'd eat sacrificial meals. They'd uh, be involved with male or female cult prostitutes at these places. So you can imagine if there's a bunch of these things kicking around in the countryside of God's nation, he's not really pleased with it. It's some festy stuff that's actually going on and there's some festy idolatry going on. So this is what Ass has walked into and he's, he's basically walked in and said, look, we need to get rid of all of this stuff. Hearts are bad. You're not seeking after God. You're seeking after a God, but you're not, not seeking after the God. So let's get rid of all this stuff and let's seek after God. I command you to do it. And maybe today, and we've done some teaching on this at the project, uh, maybe today you need to do a high place audit. What's your high place? What's your idolatry? What's, what are the things that you worship when you're not worshipping God? couple of ideas. You can tell what your high places are uh, based on what you talk about, based on what you spend your money on. I think a lot of people's high places, you can work out what their God is by just looking at their bank account and working out where the money's going. Your high place can be found by uh, what you spend time doing, what you exert energy doing, what you find consolation in when you're sad, what you get frustrated at. You can go to the uh, website, uh, sermon.net, and actually get some of the idolatry of the heart messages, but this is true. One of the things that we said, uh, one of the things that I said quite a few weeks ago is you always worship something. So when you're not worshipping God, what is it? What's your high place? And maybe there's a call, maybe God's calling some of you today. It's time to actually smash the high places. Trash it. Do what Asa did and just hook in. All right. And then we actually have, in verse 8, Asa assembles his army. I reckon this is classic. I love this. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah. You get the feeling like they're just going, we've actually got a pretty tanky military here. We're pretty happy with this. They're armed with large shields and spears. You're all going, yeah, okay. Maybe that's like the AK-47 version 3,000 years ago. A large shield and a spear. It's like, man, you got something good going there. And 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valour. I wonder whether you've ever felt uh, what I think probably uh, may have been going through some of their minds in this army at this point in time is, uh, and I certainly have. Have you ever felt this? You think, I think I can do this. So God, just take a seat. 
I think I'd be sweet with this one. All right? Just let me look after it. I had a good night's sleep. You know, I've been working on this. I've been practicing on this, and we should be sweet. All right? You just enjoy the show because this is going to be a good one. All right? And every now and then you kind of think, well, I do. Every now and then I think, yeah, I reckon <laughs> I back myself in a rumble against the devil. You know, like I'm, I reckon I'm, I'm doing pretty well right now. I'll take him on. I'm doing okay. Bring it on. Right? And then the next night, for whatever reason, God pulls the rug out from underneath you. You lose four hours sleep. You get up in the morning feeling, feeling like you just got run over by a truck and you trip over the devil, you know, and then you're down for about four hours. Do you get what I'm saying? This is what we get like sometimes, isn't it? We just kind of think, we look at all of our gear and we think, yeah, I'm in pretty good nick. But then we have this thought, geez, I thought I was hot, but now I'm not. All right? You trip over, you fall on your face. I, um, I would love to know, well, uh, let's just go on to the next scripture. Verse 9, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marashah. I think about this and I think, someone's going, you idiot, you're looking at the map the wrong way. All right? We're not meant to be here. There's like a million dudes here and we've got like about half a million. That's, that's kind of some of the thoughts that I've, I've gone through in my head. I just think, man, they'd just be going, no, no, this is the wrong valley. We're not meant to fight that army because this is good. These guys are way better. All right, way better. This is like the Iraqis fighting uh, the Americans when the second Gulf War happened, right? I think it was over in what, like two days or something, two or three days? They just got bombed out of, uh, bombed to oblivion. They basically got outclassed by technology and that's really what you're seeing here from the Ethiopians. They're just better technologically. They've got chariots, man, 300 chariots. Now that's probably, I don't know what the equivalent weapon is now. Maybe that's like a drone, you know, an unmanned drone. 300 unmanned drones in their army. I don't know. Anyway, they're way over the top. And now there's, there's probably two options for Asa and his army at this point in time. Humble yourself or get humiliated. That's kind of the options. So what does he do? And Asa cried to the Lord his God. Isn't this good? See, the truth is that bad things do happen to to good people. And the truth is that bad things actually happen to God's people. And I'll throw it out to you this morning. When was the last time you really cried out to God? Like with serious passion. Like you don't want anyone to be watching you because they'll come and cast a demon out of you or something. All right? Because they're just going, that's weird. What are they doing? Just a bit like Hannah was at the start of Samuel there. Where the priest is looking on and he's going, I think she's drunk, she's, pr- she's praying with so much passion. I wonder how long that's been. See, one of the things that they said in the counselling course that I did is they said, uh, sometimes it's really, really good for people just to stick their face in a pillow and just cry and cry and scream and just feel intense passion and emotion and just cry it out. How, how much more so is that the case with God? See, we actually don't know what's actually happening in everyone's lives on the inside right now, but it could be possible that some of you just need to go to a place where no one else is going to hear you and cry with intense passion and feeling toward God. That's what you actually see a lot of the time in the book of Psalms. Psalm 34 verse 6 says, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And one of the things God would have... uh, probably you here today, is cry out to him. He wants to hear you cry to him. 
See, there ought to be feeling in our prayers. We've got this thing about praying. I reckon a lot of prayers actually are speeches. People get up and they say a speech, you know, and then people come into a church or they come into a small group and they, uh, they haven't been to church very often. Maybe they're new Christians. And what, what do they say to you? They say, well, I can't pray. I don't know how to pray. And you know what? You know what that tells me? It tells me people, people are probably thinking that praying is a speech. They're really saying, I can't say a speech. Prayer is not a speech. Genuine prayer is not standing up to impress everyone else and get as many mm, ahs and amens as you can. It's not thinking of nice little theological truths to impress God and everyone else around the place. Prayer is talking to your dad. Prayer is communicating with him. And it ought to happen with passion. It ought to happen with passion. And probably if it happens with passion, here's a heads up for you, it's going to be a little bit messy. So you're not going to sit there and you're just going to, oh, I think they got that grammatically incorrect. Who cares? They're talking to their dad. Let him go. Don't we need some more of that? I mean, how would it be in our community groups, those of you who are in community groups, if in community groups people started crying out like asses crying out to God? A deep, guttural... And seriously, I'll be honest with you, probably a lot of us would be weirded out a little bit. Fair call? It's, it's a bit weird, but... You see, if God's real and he exists and he's a dad and he loves you and he's positively and lovingly disposed toward you to help you, not only is that in reality not weird, it's entirely appropriate that you do that. You see, there's two facets of God that are really critical. See, he's sovereign, he's in control, and he's merciful and loving. If he's only one of those... It's going to be of no use to you. If he's only sovereign and in control, but he doesn't love you, that will be of no use to you because he won't help you. If he loves you and he's merciful, but he's not strong, that doesn't help you either. But you see, he's actually merciful and loving. And this is why Asa cries out to God and says, help me. I know that you love me. I know that you're strong. I know that you're merciful. I know that you're favorably disposed toward me and want to help me. And so I'm crying out to you because I know that you're both of those things. He's really saying, help us, O Lord, our God. We rely on you. This is risky. We could get wasted. He's got 580,000 troops that could get whacked. They're good people. They're people probably, some of them at least anyway, who have repented. They've turned from the high places. They've turned to God. He's saying, help us, God. Help us. We really need your help here. We could get really, really embarrassed if we lose this battle. This could be really embarrassing and really damaging. And it's one of the things that I've thought for some time now and one of the things I've been challenging myself with. We live in such an over-insured society that we've got plan B, C, D, E and F. I mean, often in churches I've heard people say, why is it that we see so many miraculous things happening in other countries around the world and we don't see them in the West? And there's probably a whole lot of answers for it, but I think one of the answers for it is that we live in a culture where we actually don't put ourselves in precarious, potentially embarrassing situations for the glory of God. We just don't do it that much. We've always got a plan B, a C, a D, and an E. If that doesn't work out, I'm going to do this. If that doesn't work out, then I'll do this. And if that doesn't work out, I'm insured, and then I've got my super. 
Do you get what I'm saying? That's what we do. And I actually think that God loves it when his children put themselves in positions that could be really embarrassing if it doesn't come off. A, because it makes them pray more. Agreed? You get in a place where it could be really, really bad if, it, if God doesn't come through and you're doing it for his glory. That's going to be good for your prayer life, all right? You'll probably start to pray from your guts a little bit more, right, and cry out to God. And more than that, I think God's guaranteed of getting glory when you put yourself in those positions and say he's more disposed, I think, to come through for you. It doesn't mean he doesn't come through for you at other times, but, I mean, the stories that we hear from other cultures about what God does is probably a reflection of the fact that God's their only hope. And the truth is for us, the truth is for me, I actually don't think that God is my only hope most of the time, probably. I think I've got a car and I've got a bank account. It's got some money in it. I've got a house. Pantry's got food in it. I've got insurance on my cars and my house. I've got superannuation. I've got life insurance. I've got income protection insurance in case I get sick so that my family can live. I have enough food. I mean, they're all good things to have, but what does it do if I'm not careful? Is it actually gets into my psyche and I think, I don't ultimately depend upon God. I ultimately have got everything set up so that I'm safe. Damn, what's the answer to it? The answer is probably not to go and stop having things insured, but to take bigger risks. I think that's what the call is. So take bigger ones. So do things that are really risky that could end really badly. If you've got lots of things to take risks with, then take them for the glory of God and pray. Pray hard. Asa cried to the Lord his God and he says, O Lord, there's none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. What he's saying here, I've looked up some commentaries on this, what Asa's really saying is it doesn't matter whether you're strong or whether you're weak, there's no one that can help like you help. If you're really strong... It's still true. There's no one that can help like you can help. If you're really weak, it's still true. There's no one that can help like you help. So he's calling out to God. He's calling on God to come and help him. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we've come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Asa's heart absolutely is inclined toward the glory of God. This fight is not about them. It's not about someone flick someone else with a tea towel and say we went over to war about it, right? This is like, this is just your deal. This is your deal. Your your reputation, God, is at stake here, not ours. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. And I'm sure lots of us pray pray it more. See your situation. See the stuff that you engage with as, as an opportunity for God's reputation to be on display talked about this in the very first message at the project here, that because God created the world, he by default is central and his glory is central. It absolutely is. So central and his glory is central. It absolutely is. So make it central in your prayers. Say, God, this isn't about me. I mean, we heard that from uh, Doug Boyle when he he was here a couple of weeks ago. He didn't really, he's a missionary over in Kazakhstan. It seemed like he didn't really care what happened to him. He just wants people to be saved and for God to be glorified. That's what he wants. And so his prayers are are prayers that pray along those lines. God comes through in big ways because he's praying that way, I think. So what was the result? 
In verse 12, so the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. They were broken before the Lord and his army. See, that's really cool, but imagine if one of your sons got killed in the battle. Would you like the narrator of uh, Second Chronicles to be writing down that the enemy got defeated before the Lord? I suspect probably if, if it was your child, you'd be going, that's a bit rough. My kid actually got killed to win that battle, and you're saying, God did it. But this is a reality. I mean, this, I remember as I've been growing up, I don't know whether any of you have ever heard this, heard, heard this before, but I've certainly said it in my heart lots of times and just go, why is it that all the bad stuff gets blamed on me and all the good stuff gets blamed on God? Have you ever had that one? But that's just where it's, that's just where it's at. God's intention is that he actually wants to be central in, in, in everything and he wants the glory at the end of it and he deserves it. 1 Peter 4 verse 11 speaks to this when it says, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So when we do things, we need to think about God. We need to think about how can I do this in his strength? How do, how do I actually bring this about? And then I can be like Asa with his army who depended upon the Lord. The Lord came through and gave his uh, fighters the strength and the skill to defeat a foe that was almost double their size. And I've no doubt that Asa would have been particularly happy at the end of it to say, God, it was all you. It was all you. Yeah, we fought. Yeah, I got blood on my shirt. But it was you. You did it. You gave us the strength. You gave us the skill, the ability to get it done. And then you have this pivotal moment in the story of Asa that comes in at Second Chronicles 15. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa. Asa's getting some good stuff done in the country. And so you've, then you've got this prophet guy. You've got this prophet guy called Azariah, who God comes and speaks to, and he basically says to him, although we don't have this information, you need to go and communicate something to Asa. Look at what he communicates to Asa. He says, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you, but if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. And probably the second half of this message is a bit that I feel is really strongly is for us at the project here. God would say to all of us, I think, at this point in time, those of us who have been in the project for a while, good to have the visitors, he would say to us, you've done well. You've done well. But what does God do here with Asa is he sends Oded, uh, sorry, Azaria along and he says, but go harder. And I think this is the call for us today. The call for us today is, yeah, you've, you've been doing well. And Asa's been doing lots of good stuff. But God specifically sends along Azaria to say, go harder, work harder at it. And not that it's a grit your teeth kind of a thing. It's like God is actually going to reward you if you seek after him. You see, God decides how you get to know him. One of the criteria for getting to know him is seeking him with all of your heart. Don't know whether you can uh, hear a New Testament scripture ringing in your mind as you look at that, that scripture there. Out of Mark, one of them is out of Mark 8.38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
this idea pops up pretty often in the Bible where the attitude you have toward God tends to be the attitude he has toward you. So seek him and you find him. It'd be an interesting question if we had a throwing time here for people here to share about times where they felt like they found God. I think lots of us at different times have had times in our lives where we felt like we've found him. It's just like all of a sudden, oh man, you're like that. I I I just feel like I've found you all of a sudden. But the tragedy is that often those times don't last. For whatever reason, they tend, they tend to slip away, which is, which is another reason to redouble our efforts to seek after God. And this is what he says to Azar. He says, uh, Azaria says, but you take courage. Don't let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. read this really interesting chapter years ago from uh, one of John Piper's books called uh, Future Grace. He made this comment in the uh, preface, I think it was. He talked about the debtor's ethic. And uh, he talked about the prevalence in churches of uh, people standing up and saying, you should obey God out of thankfulness for what he's done for you. And in this uh, chapter, he said, I challenge you to find one scripture that specifically says you should obey God out of thankfulness for what he's done for you. And you know what? There aren't any. There's none. (laughs) Like, you can maybe get one verse, it's like about a third saying that, all right? And it's weird because you kind of, I remember sitting there reading it and I'm just going, well, I kind of heard that all the time, that you've got to obey God out of thankfulness for what he's done for you. But you you just can't find it. And ever since then, and that would have been probably 12 years ago that I read that, I literally haven't found a verse that says that. And he says that if you're approach your relationship with God like that, you've taken on a debtor's ethic. Christ has done so much dying on the cross for me that I need to repay him by my obedience. And the question you've got to ask is, is that the way the mechanism works in your relationship with God? Not here. Not here. There's a prophet with a word from God comes up to uh, Asher and he says, look, If you work really, 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 really hard, God's going to reward you. And this is what God would say to all of you. He would say to all of us here now is, I died for you on the cross. I've done so many things for you. Don't look backwards. Look forwards to the grace and the reward that I'm going to give you. And it's it's almost kind of counterintuitive for us because we don't actually, we kind of think, well, he's already given us so much. Well, he's offering you more. He offers you more when you follow him. Second Peter chapter 1 talks about uh, the, the technique or the strategy by which you can escape the temptations of sinful desires. And you know what it is? Promises of God. So he promises more. So come and follow him and come and seek after him. In your presence, I think it's Psalm 14, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand of pleasures forevermore. So seek him. This is what he would say to all of you today. Seek him. He offers a reward to you. And the, the, the weird thing is that often we sit and we don't seek him because we don't know how good the reward is because you don't know how good the reward is until you seek him. And you think, you get a little bit of it and you just kind of go, oh, this is good, I'm really getting into God and man, he's really good. And then we kind of pull up and we go, I think that'll do for now. You know what I'm saying? 
You just you pull up. You just go, that'll do. I'm re- that's pretty, that, you know, a bite of that Mars bar tastes really nice. I think I'll just leave the rest. You don't do that, do you? If you like Mars bars, you just go, is that all there are? Are there any more? Is anyone buying me some more? Because that one's gone. All right? You just, you want to get more. All right? And unlike Mars bars, it'll make you sick in the end. God doesn't make you sick. He just makes you more fully human than you've ever been before. And God would say that to all of us today. Come and be rewarded. Come and seek me. And the weird thing about this is you're just going to have to get used to the fact that if you're going to seek hard after God, there's going to be a fair bit of it that's going to be done on your own. Especially if you're a leader. The nature of leadership, the nature of Asa here, does he have a chorus of 35 people around him in exactly the same spot saying, yeah, let's keep going, let's hit it up. He doesn't. He's got a prophet standing there saying, you... Seek after God and seek after him for the reward. And God would say to all of you individually, you seek after him. Not as a grit your teeth, hard, heavy thing, but he wants to reward you. He wants to give you something great and you have no idea how good it is. You don't. Some of you might be sitting there going, yeah, I kind of do. You don't, all right? Because at your best moment when you feel like you found God, you're still short of what's possible. And that's not a condemnation thing. That's an encouragement thing. That's like, come and dine at the smorgasbord. You know, this is better than wisers. Amen? Amen? This is better than wisers. It is. Come and dine at it, right? But instead of doing that, we sit down in front of the TV and stuff our faces with white bread, don't we? And then we have to eat fibre for other reasons after we've eaten all the white bread, all right? This is, this is what God's calling you to. It's a reward. Hebrews 11 verse 6 expresses a similar idea. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you notice that? If you want to be close to God, there's two criteria. Existence and that he's a rewarder. I mean, I'm keen one day to preach a sermon about rewards because I think the Bible talks a lot about rewards. It talks a lot about rewards in heaven. All right? Some of you are going, what does that mean? I'm in a two-by-two two room, you know? If I haven't done it and the other guy gets a seven-by-seven seven room, I don't know. All right? There's actually some parables in uh, the Gospels that actually talk about the fact that uh, if you're faithful to God, he'll put you in charge of cities and towns and nations. That's possible. I mean, some people would say, oh, it's just a parable, but other people, other commentators are saying, no, that, that actually could be legit, that you could be in charge of a city when the new heavens and the new earth are created. Would that be good? Would you like to be in charge? Yeah, just some of you going, you, know, you look at the person next to you and you go, oh, not then. Don't let the, well, I'd be purified by then, right? God will fix them all up. You get a sense of this, that there's a reward for you. Spins me out. See, some of us, and uh, I hear this every now and then from people, they just go, why doesn't God just show up like on the Channel 10 News? Yeah, because we've got video editing now, right? And half the world will go, ah, it was just a G up anyway. got photoshopped, all right? That's one of the reasons. I mean, there's something in the human heart, and I think Jesus talked about this when he said that people won't even believe when someone rises from the dead. If we are determined to disbelieve, we will disbelieve. It's just how it works. 
Because if you actually look at most truth in the world, most truth in the world can be dis- disbelieved. You might think people are stupid for doing it, but most of it can be disbelieved if people desperately want to disbelieve it. I had someone uh, come and challenge me about the Christian faith and the reality of God and uh, wanted answers as to... Uh, wanted me to prove that God existed. And I didn't do it. Now, I have got some good arguments, I think, why I think it's reasonable to think that God really exists. But the truth was this person didn't want him to exist. And so it was the case that there would never be any evidence I could put forward that would be good enough for him to believe that God existed because he didn't want to. And while ever we had that blockage there where he wasn't prepared to deal with accepting God's existence if the evidence led in that direction well there's almost no point in having the conversation because everything I'll put out it's just going to smash it down but for Christians you believe God exists and he's a rewarder so you go to him you get up tomorrow morning and you maybe get up half an hour earlier to spend time in the word tomorrow morning because you you know that he's going to reward you because that's what he says he'll do so if you seek him with all of your heart he'll reward you And then the cool thing about being a preacher is you get to make up your own words. All right? I don't even know how that works, but I'm standing up here, so I just make up my own words. So I've made up a word here called paction. All right? So don't go define paction in Google because I'll just go, hey, what? What does Asa do? As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and... See, this is it. Azariah has said, seek him and he'll reward you. And uh, Asa's gone, okay, when can I start? It's a bit like Abraham and Isaac. You know when God told Abraham, go and sacrifice your son? It says he got up early the next morning and he left. Don't muck around. Asa's going, really? As a reward? Let's get going. Let's get moving. And I'd pray that God would do that in your hearts today. That God would do, do that in all of our hearts today is you'd go, Really? There's a reward. Really? There's more? Amen? Yeah? Yeah? Come on. You gotta, you gotta, you just gotta look better than that, right? Cause this is good. This is good. And you should have that in your, really? There's more? And even some of you probably just in a really sweet spot with God at the moment. And God would say, yeah, it gets better. It gets better. Don't plateau and just go, oh, I'm happy to stay at this level. You ever have that thought where you just kind of go, Oh, if only I could get back to where I was six months ago with God. Anyone ever have that? God's just going, no, I don't want you to get back there. You're just going to go through there in the future. That's what I want you to do. Don't just get back to where you were, because in Isaiah, I think it is, it says, God, God likes to do new things. He says, behold, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to reward you. I'm going to take you through that. But it's going to cost you. It always costs you. But it costs you dirt to get gold. All right? You can take your shovel out, shovel a whole bunch of dirt out there, give it to God, right? Which is your time, money, uh, resources, sleep, and he'll give you gold. It's this classic saying from John Piper where he says, if you rake, you might get leaves. But it, sorry, if you rake, you'll get leaves. If you dig, you might get gold. So dig. He promises gold if you dig. 
What have we got with uh, Asa? Well, he gets some passion and he gets some action. And you know what happens when you get passion and action next to each other is you get regeneration. And you get regeneration almost every time. What do you get if you've got someone who's really passionate but they never act on it? You've got a hypocrite, haven't you? That's what you've got. You've got a hypocrite. And if you look around, if there's been times in your life where you've been full of passion and you didn't come through on anything, you've been a hypocrite. Jesus loves hypocrites. He dies for hypocrites. He'll clean you up from being a hypocrite. All right, but you've been one. Okay? The flip side is this. If you're someone who uh, is really, really active but doesn't have much passion, you probably became a legalist. Put rules on other people. You had expectations on other people. Maybe in your heart you were judgmental of other people. They didn't hit the standard that you thought they should hit. You put both of those together and this is like the perfect storm in terms of uh, regeneration and restoration around the place. And check this out. Verse 9 of 2 Chronicles 15. And he gathered all Judah for great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Man, I pray that that happens to the project. And I'm not talking about deserting from other churches. I'm talking about deserting from other gods. Don't you want that? Yeah? You guys need to get more noisy. Don't you want it? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be cool? People just in Highfields and Toowoomba are just going, non-Christians, people who are not going to church anywhere, even Christians who are just totally unaffiliated with churches, they're going, man, I've heard that God's doing something out of the project. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to join up because he's doing something out there. That would be cool. Amen? It would be. But you know what? He will do it. He absolutely will do it. If you get fired up with passion and intense fervor for him and you do something. But the do something's going to cost and to get the passion's probably going to cost too. But, man, the reward far exceeds the cost. That's what God would have you know today. It far exceeds the cost. I would love, not for any other reason, and my sinful nature creeps in underneath the surface sometimes and, and messes with this. Wouldn't it be good if we had a hall full of people here that were just loving Christ? Wouldn't it? That, that would be sensational. Especially lots and lots of people that don't know him right now. And they come and they get saved by him and he does some really cool stuff. Man, we, we want defectors, don't we? Yeah? Let's have some more defectors, not defects, <laughs> all right? Defectors. Here's a good uh, proposal for uh, a bit of a change to church rules. Check this one out. This would be a good, uh, good thought for you, maybe. <laughs> I'll say this tongue-in-cheek. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul, but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death whether young or old, man or woman. Now, some of you are probably thinking, oh, geez, that's a bit rough. But the vibe that you get here is that they're really pleased to do this. They're going, this is what we want to do. We're going to make this solemn promise to God that we're going to seek after him, and if anyone doesn't do it, we're going to top him. <laughs> we'll kill him. Now, that's going to thin out your numbers in church, isn't it? If you make a church rule like that. It's just like we're going to have a big knife 
and we're just going to slay people out the back door, you know? So altar calls are going to be good, aren't they? I mean, everyone's going to be coming forward every time. They're just going, I'm into that. (laughs) But see, it wasn't a heavy commitment for them. It wasn't something uh, for them to fear or for them to think was unfair for them. It was actually something they were rejoicing over. See, they'd sworn that they wanted to follow him with all of their heart. And they'd sought him with, with all of their desire. Sought him with, with all of their desire. And you know what? This is just precious. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath. Everyone was pumped about the fact that they'd made this promise that they're going to kill anyone that didn't seek after God. Can you imagine this? Imagine thousands of people, a big throng, standing there with passion saying, God, we'll follow you, and if we don't, kill me. Kill me. They'd sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was, what's that say? Found by them. I love that. What does that look like? It's almost something that you can't describe. It would be very difficult for me to describe it, but some of you have known that at different times. I pray most of you or all of you have known it, where you just go, man, there have been some times where I just felt like I found him. But do you notice the solemnity, the seriousness, the blood earnestness of the commitment to God came before finding him? It's one thing while I was thinking about this message that ran through my mind, I just thought, where has our appetite for commitment gone? Where's it gone? I mean, most probably most of us, as we read these verses, it just maybe our main response is, that's a bit harsh to make a commitment like that, but they didn't think it was. They were passionate about it. And then this beautiful epitaph for uh, Asa. Even Maka, his queen mother, King Asa removed from being a queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa was a passionate dude. He went after his own mum. All right? Now, seriously, some of you are just going, man, I'd, there'd be some strife if I went after my own mum. And maybe there was for Asa, but he's just going, no, you're worshipping Asherah, so I'm coming after you. All right? Not to kill you or hurt you, but I'm coming to deal with your idolatry. That should not happen. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the Brook Kidron. But wouldn't you love this uh, final statement about Asa in chapter 15 to be written on your tombstone? Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all of his days. I had this uh, interesting uh, time with some uh, Year 12 boys a little while ago, and uh, one of them, seriously, I'm not even going to tell you his name, but it's like a dude you'd never expect to be serious. You know people like that? And all of a sudden they come out with this um, serious question or comment, you need someone to get the defibrillator, all right? Because you just go, where the heck did that come from? Right? So we're sitting down and he goes, Hey, uh, Sondi, what do you think you'd like to say as your last words? Out of the blue. I'm just going, Oh, geez. It's like, yeah, I've been working on that for the last 38 years and I've got it all sorted. There's a 17 A4 page 
you know, paper that I'm going to read out when I'm dying. I don't know. I hadn't even thought about it. And uh, I said, well, just give me a minute, man. So I just sat there and I thought about it. And I don't know. Final last words are an interesting thing. And I'm not even saying mine are the right ones, but the ones that came to my mind is I thought, uh, I just want to say on my dying day, I made it. I made it and I stayed true to God. I made it and I stayed true to my wife. I made it and I stayed true to my kids. I just made it. And not that I mean it's a me-centred kind of a thing, but I just want to know that I've been faithful to the end. Wouldn't be a bad one, would it, if that got written on your tombstone, that you're wholly true all of your days. Passion, action and the project. That's where we wrap up. And I'll show you a vid and we're done. I sat next to a, uh, a fellow on uh, Friday night who's a pastor of uh, another church in town, actually, from uh, Chris uh, Mulhere, his name is. He's from uh, New Hope in town. He's a senior pastor. He's off on long service at the moment. He made these interesting comments. He said, if you look at the parable of the sower, where uh, the sower's walking around throwing seed, there's actually four different types of soil, and one of them's good, and it actually produces a harvest. And he said... This, he said, Jesus, and I don't know, I don't, I don't think you want to push the mass too far, but he said this, and I thought, fair point. He said, Jesus is really saying that there's going to be a 25% return on your sowing. And he got talking about evangelism. He obviously has a huge heart for evangelism, and he's just all fired up about evangelism. And he says, you know what you need to do? He said, if Jesus is saying you're going to get a 25% return on your seed, you just need to sow more. He said, there's too many people who actually work really, really hard and pray really hard for like a couple of people. He said, and often they don't even come to faith. And they're not busy scattering seed everywhere else as well, the seed of the gospel. And this is probably uh, one area for the project that we haven't really talked a whole lot about is this whole missional component to what we're about here. Uh, We're very clear about the fact that we love to have people that God's called from other churches to come and join us, but that's not our main target. We don't, it doesn't, help anyone in in the body of Christ if you just go around stealing sheep from another sheep station. And the really cool thing is, over the last week, I've actually come across some stunning church planning statistics, which should give all of us heaps and heaps of hope and should encourage you, I hope, and it's encouraged me anyway, I hope it encourages you, to actually just start scattering, all right? People just go, where did that come from, you know? Because you probably haven't spoken to them about Christ as much as you could have and this is not a grit your teeth you need to be obedient thing this is like a passion and action let's just start scattering let's see what Christ might do what the gospel might do in people's hearts check this stat out the average new church gains most of its new members 60 to 80 percent from the ranks of people who are not attending any worshipping body while churches over 10 to 15 years of age gain 80 to 90 percent of new members by transfer from other congregations this is a research fact. But this is how it works. And we've actually seen that in the project here, is that apart, aside from the people who have come from uh, TCC in there, we've actually got a lot of people who have come to the church here who haven't been formally affiliated anywhere else. Woohoo! Let's do that. Whether they're Christians or not, let's... Hopefully, the Lord will bring lots of non-Christians to faith as part of the project. But at the very least, wouldn't it be good to have non-affiliated Christians who aren't connected to a body come and be part of a biblical community so they just get on fire? You see, the best vacuum cleaner salesman is the one that, the person that's got one at home and they love it, aren't they? 
not the one who's doing it for a job. And the best Christian evangelist is the Christian that loves Christ and follows hard after Christ and has found Christ. Agreed? Amen? You will be, because you won't be able to stop yourself. It's a bit like Jesus said, uh, I think it was Jesus, wasn't it? He said, if I don't speak, the very rocks themselves will cry out. You will be like that. If you get the reward from Christ and you follow hard after him, you'll be like it. You say, well, that was Jesus. You know, and people go, well, what was that? And he's going, well, I can't help it. Like, I love him so much. And it just comes up, I'm sorry. I actually love him. And he loves you. Here's another interesting stat. This is about new people following Jesus. Check this out. If a church is zero to three years, church is zero to three years old average, 10 people being one to Christ for every 100 people in the church. Church is three to 15 years old, average five people being one to Christ for every 100 people in the church. And church is 15 plus years old, average three people one to Christ per 100 members in the church. This is really exciting because we're in the first category. We're in this one right here. Yeah? This is exciting. We've got two and a half years before we get to the three-year mark where the statistics say that we're going to drop off a bit. We're going to halve our conversion rate. Now, no one's getting paid here to do anything that we do. So it's not about we're going out to get conversions because you've got to come and be part of ours and give us your money. No, we just want to go and see people get saved by Christ, don't we? and be brought to be part of his family. So theoretically, by the time we hit the three-year marker, we should have maybe 20 to 30 new Christians in the church here if the statistics are true for us. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why church plants work um, more effectively evangelistically than other ones, than churches who are a little bit older. But let me, let me say this to you. Uh, the readings that I've done this week suggest that the most effective missional and evangelistic technique, if you want to call it that, is not to come up with a new program in an an existing church, is not to do more in missions, although those things do help. The most effective one, without a shadow of a doubt, is actually to plant churches. This, uh, I was reading an article by Tim Keller, and he actually said the ballooning number of uh, Christians in America... uh, well, they're not ballooning now, but the ballooning number that they had for, I don't know, maybe 50 years was a direct result of prolific church planning just prior to that. I actually said that for a church denomination to maintain its size, they need to plant 1% to 2% of their total number of churches every year to maintain their size and 3 to 4% of their total number every year to actually grow. So what this makes me think, and we're only six months old... But you know what this makes me think? It's got to actually be part of our core values as a church that we want to plant churches. I told Ian Shelton this on Friday night. I said, I think we need to include it as part of our core values of this church that we want to plant churches. You can't argue with, with the statistics. I can give you the, the, the papers on it. You just can't argue with it. The most effective missional and evangelistic thing is to plant churches. And so Tim Keller says, if churches want to reach Australia, they just need to plant lots of churches. 
the statistics just don't lie. And he said, people who don't know anything about church planning think, no, that's ridiculous. You should invest all your time in, should invest all your time in older churches and get really good missional and evangelistic programs. He says, but anyone who knows anything about church planning knows that it actually gets the job done evangelistically and gets the gospel out there in a way that an established church just can't do it. We are in a sweet spot. You feel it? We're in a sweet spot. Yeah? You've got to feel it. All right? This is good. This is an opportunity. Oh, here we go. Now I'm going to finish with this clip. This is one of my favorite songs. And um, it's by a guy called uh, Todd Agnew. And uh, it's, it's probably uh, one of the best songs, and there's some nice visuals there too, it's one of the best songs to engender this feeling that Jesus was someone who was filled with passion, wasn't he? But he was also filled with action. And man, you cannot mistake the regeneration that's come as a result of Christ's passion and his action. Can you? It's phenomenal. We wouldn't be sitting here today if he didn't do it. Now, it wasn't easy. Jesus was good to song and finish up. 1 John 2 verse 4 to 6 says, Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So my prayer, and I'd love it if you'd pray with me that uh, that Jesus would help us to walk in the way that he walked. God, uh, Todd Agnew is right. Most of the time we don't really know what it means to uh, be like you. God, I just, uh, Jesus, I'm just so thankful to you that you are filled with passion and fervor and intense feeling and filled with action also. And that has resulted in uh, us standing here today. God, I pray that you'd help us to seek you. To seek you like our life depends upon it, because it does. God, I pray that uh, in seeking you, we'd be like you, and we'd seek out those who haven't been saved by you yet. And God, that we would take this huge opportunity that you've got for us, this invitation you've got for us to sow your son and his truth with the non-Christian people around us, Lord, that we would be people of passion for you and action evangelistically and missionally that many would come to faith in you and that they would love you and that they would find you too, God. We want that. We want that. We want what happened to uh, the people in Asa's kingdom to happen to people in the project here, Lord. We want people to defect from their gods to this one. We want people to fill this place, Lord, not because it says anything about us specifically, but it says so much about you. It says that you're a saving God, that you're a loving God, that you're a rescuing God, that you're a central God. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to be filled with passion and intense fervor for you, and that that would just overflow. And maybe, Lord, sometimes that means that there's going to be engagements that we have with people where they go, well, that's a bit weird. But I reckon that happened to you, Jesus. I reckon as you walked around and you did some stuff, there would have been lots of people in the temple that day saying that's a bit weird. What do you turn over the tables for? What do you drive people out with a whip? That's weird. 
sweating drops of blood in the garden's weird too. But it's all of that stuff that you did cross that uh, you won for us. You won for us your Father's favour and your Father's oversight. And Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for your plan. And I thank you for your Son, Father, that was passionate and active. And thank you for the regeneration that he's brought on this planet over the thousands of years since, the 2,000 years since. Pray that you'd help us to, in a small way, replicate what he's done. Amen.